Hello and welcome to Under the Skin. Thank you for your kind comments about the Tony Robbins uh, podcast. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. You're going to love Blind Boy today. He's an incredible comic and I would say cultural commentator and curator. His own podcast um, is amazing. What's it called, Django? The Blind Boy Podcast. The Blind Boy Podcast. That's complicated stuff. Also, his book, man. The Blind Boy short stories, they're absolutely amazing. Uh, Before we get into this fantastic episode with uh, Blind Boy from the Rubber Bandits, I want to remind you that my Netflix special, Rebirth, is streaming now. Thank you for all your lovely messages. Thank you, Judd Apatow, Ian Wright, beloved Miranda, some lovely uh, messages from famous folks from around the world, but... It's not, I don't only care about famous people, just mostly. Now, you know, as you know, I'm in hot pursuit of spiritual enlightenment and trying to look at everything the same, like some wonderful, illuminous soup of beingness. Um, or you can pre-order my book, Mentors, on Amazon. And also, I'd like to start a conversation on mentors and mentorship. I've been talking about uh, the people that mentored me out of addiction and guide me through life. Who are your important mentors? I'd love to start talking about that. Again, um, before we leap into uh, Blind Boy from the Rubber Bandits, just looking forward, we've got Candice Owens coming on the show next week. She's a controversial uh, thinker and orator. Check out some of her stuff. Look at her on Instagram and that, and you'll understand a little more of the controversy. If you want to ask her some questions via the conduit of my face, mouth, and mind, Email questions to hello at russellbrand.com, two S's and L's. We've got uh, Hindi Andrews coming up soon, Radhanath Swami, a mentor of mine, a great um, Hindu priest fella. Uh, Catherine Graves, the midwife, the happy pairs. And, uh, and if, there's any other, if there's anything you want to tell us, uh, hello at russellbrand.com, just tell us it. Send us emails, questions, answers, whatever you require. require. Here's some... Uh, praise for the uh, Tony Robbins episode this this is from Evan Jones 85 on Twitter I've worked in mental health for a while now on my drive back to to uh, from work today I listened to no, he's driving to work sorry this is I want you to know exactly what relationship this journey had to Evan Jones's work he's going there I listened to Rusty Rocket's podcast under the skin with Tony Robbins after only one episode I felt the control I needed to be the best at my job today I felt I made a difference thank you both there we go literally saving people in mental health and what's this from at little Peggy Lou she says to both me and Tony the broadcast should be required listening for all people holding elected offices in Washington, especially the President of the United States. You really do have the power to change your thought process and it will alter your life. Just knowing you can do so is empowering. Change is a good thing. Of course, Tony has advised presidents in the past and I've always imagined that one day I would eventually become president of some country or if if they're not one of the existing ones, we could we could perhaps make one from cardboard and simple goodwill. Uh, what other things? People on Instagram said some nice stuff as well, didn't they? Lutz official running just did twelve k because I couldn't stop listening. Great show. Although that does sound quite compulsive. Lutz official, maybe uh, go home and. Don't, you know, Forrest Gump your way through life listening to Tony Robbins. Off Facebook, Marion Millen says, Brilliant of uh, Tony Robbins to seek you out and for you to mash 
up with him. Since we're getting this for free, I can't complain about the insights. Well, I'm not sure I care for your context. Well, it's all right for nothing, but if he was to charge even a penny piece or a cent, I'd be infuriated. Anyway, so that's uh, the last episode. I've told you what we've got coming up, but now let's enjoy Blind Boy together. And please have a look at uh, Rebirth on Netflix and stick it up on social media. I'm really keen for it to do well. Thanks. And, oh yeah, send me your comments for this as well. Subscribe. For heaven's sake, subscribe. Without further ado, here's Blind Boy on Under the Skin. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Thank you for joining me for Under the Skin uh, Live, Blind Boy. Can I like, uh, so if we're filming this and recording this in Ireland, so uh, you're very popular and very famous in this country. You're very focused on pouring a glass of water as well, yeah. <laughs> I notice. <clears throat> Can I just sort of, well, I'll say address the elephant in the room. Can I address the plastic bag on your face? Like, yeah. <laughs> Why is it that you conduct your entire... Because like, like, there's a lot of things of yours that I'm into. I'm into your musical career. I love your hip-hop. I love your rap. I've read your uh, book of short stories. I listen to your podcast. I like a lot of the stuff you do in media. I like your commentary on mental health. Why have you got a fucking plastic bag on your face? <laughs> um, anonymity. Not anonymity, no. Because um, like, you can fucking find my name if you Google it. Like, but it, it's... Privacy, privacy. The I don't like to interact with the spectacle of celebrity. We'll say I like having a normal life. I like going into Aldi and buying toilet roll and not having people judge. But that's what happens. That's what happens if someone if you're a, a, a person of note and you try and buy toilet paper, people are interested in your choice of toilet paper. I don't want that uh, existence. I like having just a regular life. You know, like Kermit the Frog. Like no one gives a fuck about Kermit the Frog's hand. You know, the hand that's so bizarre. So all you care about is the green thing on top. So I'm just Kermit the Frog. So you think that the persona, your public persona, is like the felt veneer Mm -hmm. of Kermit the Frog. And within that, there is a hand that is your essential self. And you want to protect that. I want to protect it. Um, I tell you why. And the interesting thing is, it goes back to the first series of Big Brother. Now, you did, what was it, Big Brother's Little Brother? You started on season two, didn't you? Called Big Brother's Big Mouth. Big Brother, why? <laughs> it was an important cultural artefact. <laughs> I, when, um, we, we, I started off with the Rubber Bandits, right, which is my, my duo act with my partner, Mr. Chrome. When we were about 15, 16, and we started doing prank phone calls just for fun, but they started getting quite popular before the internet, just passing around with CDs. And... I remember watching Big Brother Series 1, and it's the first time I ever saw... A guy won it, Craig, a lovely fella. And I remember watching him being the most famous person in Britain and Ireland for about two weeks, and then slowly watching him get less and less famous. And then I started thinking to myself, fuck it, he's probably like not earning loads of money, he's just a normal dude, and he's got this burden of fame upon him. What if he wants to go to B&Q? Or what if he wants to go and get a normal job again and he has the baggage of... It'd be like having the world's largest piece of broccoli in your teeth <laughs> and having to walk around with it all the time, you know? So, like, 
<clears throat> fame alloys you to an aspect of your identity and then, in a sense, robs you of it. I mean, there's that famous quote, fame is the mask that eats into the face of the wearer. And what I feel myself is that when I first became famous, it was inadvertently as a kind of character, exaggerated, mm -hmm. campness, daft attire, trinkets all doled up with little bells and whistles and silliness and my hair sprayed up. In a way, it was like I was trying to smother myself in licorice and glitter so that I could cope with the sort of furnace of fame, but I didn't give myself another name. I was me. And then that's it. That's who you are. Yeah. Like... Because, of course, we're lucky enough now to be in an environment here at the Helix Theatre in Dublin where people have come here to see us that are fond of us, one assumes. But, like, not everybody no. is. So, like, people have a... You know, there's people that will, like, think... Mm, but and a lot of the time, people dislike me for stuff that isn't stuff I've said, isn't stuff I believe, isn't stuff I've done, but is the, ref uh, the refracted version of me that exists through the lens of celebrity, which you initially referred to as a spectacle, and I'm interested in your choice of word there. Because it is a spectacle. Um, like, I tell you how I know. Occasionally, I will meet people with my bag off, right? If I'm just holding up... <laughs> See, that's perfect. That's a normal sentence to me. <laughs> if I'm if I'm in a pub or something, if I if I'm in a pub and someone recognizes my accent, you know, this is the thing. And as well, the bag also protects my own mental health. And I'll tell you why. Like, when I meet people like as blind by, and they have a look in their face of like um, kind of surprise. It's like, oh, there's that guy that I saw on the internet or saw on the TV. I would hate for that to be my normal life. I know what it's like to walk into a room and for everybody in the room to be talking about there's blind boy and then to walk back into that same room with the bag off and nobody know who I am. I know what it feels like for both of those positions and I would it would be very challenging to my mental health if my everyday life was people going, there's that dude off the TV. In a way, I suppose the reason I went a different route is because I felt like I wanted to have the mask continually and oddly because of mental health reasons as well. I kind of enjoyed the idea that I had a papier-mâché version of myself out in the world that people were dealing with while real me was sort of protected. Me and my, uh, my now wife, we went to Glastonbury, oddly, to stay in Nick Cage's house. He wasn't there. He just said you could have it. <laughs> for a while, and by God did we exploit that resource. We stayed there much too long, longer than we were welcome in reality. But like, while we was in Glastonbury, I wanted to go out and about on that, so um, I thought, I goes, look, we'll dress in disguises. But I elected to disguise myself as a brash show-off. So, <laughs> <laughs> so people kept noticing me, because I was sort of marching, sort of, hello! <laughs> I was like a worse exhibitionist than my normal personality thus defeating the purpose of disguise. What did you wear? How did you fucking... Like, what? Like, I don't know if you have Captain Birdseye in your country. He's, so, he's a fish finger salesman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the modern version, who they've tried to make a bit more slick. Ah, uh, yeah, I don't like that. The old-fashioned one. He's a bit like Father Christmas, but he's on a boat with a load of children. Do you know there's a theory... It's questionable. There's a, a theory that they changed the brand of uh, Captain Birdseye because of paedophiles. Well, I agree, because he was on a boat with children. Yeah. Get normal sailors. But what it's done now... No, is... I only works with children, Ah. But, mm. but doesn't he still hang out with children now? He's just good-looking and slick. If you are going to be a paedophile, <laughs> be a good-looking and slick one. <laughs> That's the bird's-eye message. 
I reckon, so how'd you dress? You dressed it, up, how'd you dress up as Captain Birdseye? What did you just dye your beard silver and Yes, right. Yeah, I had a very sort of a silver beard and I was sort of like a sort of a hearty, haughty sort of sea captain fella. The whole disguise model fell apart quite quickly because people were going, Is that loudmouth sea captain yeah. Russell Brand? <laughs> no, people go, There's Russell Brand showing off with a silver beard. <laughs> I like him even less now. <laughs> Yeah. So now, come on, let's do a proper interview because I want to talk to you about some of the important things that you do. One of the things that surprised me uh, about you is the sort of uh, depth of your cultural knowledge. I like what you're doing with your podcast. It seems to me that they're sort of Adam Curtis-style audio documentaries that are heavily authored but an attempt to find narratives and stories within culture. I was listening to the Trump hip-hop one. What is it that you're trying to do? What type of stories are you trying to tell, Brian Boy? Um... I am, I'm hugely influenced by Adam Curtis. I love Adam Curtis as a like, kind of journalistic style where he'll, he'll take something that we can read about on Wikipedia, but he'll have a unique, it's story. It's all about story. That's what I try and do. The shit that I talk about on my podcast, you can go on, you can read about it online. It's not like, it's nothing particularly new. Like this week's podcast was the history of hip hop. But what I do is I look for what I refer to as the hot take, the kind of conspiracy theory-ish, interesting little angle that turns it into an engaging story that makes you want to go, fuck, what happens next? So with the most recent one, what it was is I, it was the story of hip hop, how it came from the poverty of the South Bronx. But while I was researching it, I found Donald Trump's first ever mention in a newspaper. And the official date for the invention of hip hop is the 11th of August, 1973. But two months later, in the New York Times, there was a, a clipping that says, racist landlord, no, 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 it said landlord accused of uh, anti-black racist policies. And that landlord was Donald Trump, 27 years of age. So the hip hop grew out of rent parties in the Bronx, like parties whereby you, you just get everyone around and have a DJ and everyone chips in so you can pay your rent. So I made the connection that it is possible that the likes of Donald Trump's slum landlordism and putting rents up to push people of colour out laid the foundations for what led to hip-hop. And it's a big reach, like, but, it, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's entertaining, you know. Yeah. We could be on the precipice of a musical renaissance now that he's the president of our most powerful nation on earth, then, eh? The music's going to be fantastic in five years. There'll be no one to listen to it. <laughs> I wonder, though, I often think back with uh, artists that I enjoy, and I wonder if they had the internet, would they have bothered their arses doing anything, you know? Like someone like, um, like James Joyce, like he had this obsessive desire for knowledge, you know? If you read, you, like, something like Finnegan's Wake, they study Finnegan's Wake and they can't understand how one person had so much knowledge in, of, of various texts. Like, if he had Wikipedia... He'd just be in a Wikipedia hole all day and probably editing Wikipedia. <laughs> like, what about the great writers out there now that are just editing Wikipedia? And we'll never find out, you know? Um, or someone spending like... Spending all the time editing Wikipedia, they could be creating the next Ulysses. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Hmm. Go on then, tell us a bit more about Finnegan's Wake and stuff like that. Do you know a lot about James Joyce? Um, I know a bit about Joyce. What I like about Joyce is if Ulysses... One really interesting thing about James Joyce is that he, he, he started the first cinema in Dublin. And this would have been, I think it was about 1916, he opened the first cinema. And when you read... Well, there was a lot going on then, didn't it? Been... I know, yeah. <laughs> what people need is a good sit down, <laughs> passively. Oh, James, fucking... <laughs> so he opened the cinema. But the beauty of Ulysses is that he, he writes the book 
as if he's a film director, which in literature before was, uh, it was absurd to kind of have uh, different lenses. Like there's one scene in Ulysses where I can't think of the exact thing, but one character like throws something into the Liffey, into the river. And then like a hundred pages later, another character walks past that thing that's thrown in. That wasn't really done in literature. That's a cinematic technique. That's what Tarantino would do, you know, in Pulp Fiction. But Joyce was thinking like a director because he was obsessed with film. The other thing he was obsessed with was uh, music. He wanted to be a songwriter. He was obsessed with a crooner called John McCormack, who's a, a bit of a gas cunt. Um, <laughs> he's just got... <laughs> Could you, for non-Irish listeners, describe what a gas cunt is? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's one of the, the highest terms of endearment that an Irish person can bestow upon you. It truly is. Um, but yeah, jo- Joyce as a writer, it's because he was borrowing from other forms. He was borrowing from the incredibly new medium of cinema. And also, he wanted to be a singer. So there's this lovely internal rhyming and lyricism to his writing, you know. And even at one inch of James Joyce is, is prose, pure prose, the whole thing. Do you think you can guess the sort of one thing I know about James Joyce? It's really obvious. His filthy, dirty letters. Yep, that's it. That's what it is. His filthy, dirty letters between him and his missus. Like, he says some good stuff about, like, eating farts and the he like. He does. Now, this is what I wonder, though. This is what I wonder. Have you, yeah. all read, have you read or at least aware of James Joyce's filthy letters? What's his missus called? Nora Barnacle. Nora Barnacle. Go on, love. <laughs> Fantastic name. But, yeah, jo- Joyce, they, they uncovered correspondence between Joyce and Nora. And he was writing incredibly f- uh, filthy things. I have it, like, he, there was, he was talking about farts, he was talking about poo, he was talking about, I want to sit underneath you and stare up while you do a shit. Like, that type of thing. But here's the thing. We look at that now and we call it perverse, right? I, I think all he, I, what I, when I read those letters, I, I think it's somebody who's never seen pornography, who's never seen a pair of tits, who lives in a culture where sex doesn't exist. Like, one of the characters in Ulysses goes to uh, the museum in town and gets a boner off a Greek statue. Do you know what I mean? Because seriously, he was... Whoa, but like, look at that urn. That's the society they were living in. A, 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 a marble bust... From, you know, a 4,000-year-old marble bust is what would do it for you in 1914 in Ireland. And I think a Joyce's, what we consider to be filth in Joyce's letters, is merely, it's someone aching for sex education. Or can, can I please look at your fanny? <laughs> I, we, we're not allowed to talk about it in the pub. There's no photographs of it. There's no internet. Can the I just get a good look at it? The Joyce never wrote. Can I please look at your fanny? Please, please, can I look at your fanny, please? My favourite... Uh, Is he, he going to put a full stop in there? He, he, he was uh, asking her to fart in one of the letters, and he, go, he, he refers to the farts as big, long fellows. <laughs> he goes, do, do, do a few pops, do a few cracks, Nora. I especially love the big, long fellows. <laughs> I like that he, I mean, in a sense, he's extremely romantic in it, Blind Boy, that he loves this woman so much that he's characterised particular types of her farts. Yeah. Oh, the Longfellows. They'll always be my favourites. A special place in my heart for the Longfellows. But if you were to contrast Joyce's letters with, we'll say, any, any sext that anyone is sending now, if you look at people's sexts, they all follow the narrative of pornography. Go on. Well, it starts off with fucking... Uh, suck the top of my mickey and then show me your bra and then uh, let's do doggy style and then I finish on your face. That's the standardised 
leave insert syllabus, sexed. <laughs> but it's informed by pornography. Whereas Joyce didn't have that. It's, it's like if, 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 um, if you're ever online looking for a, a, a bit of dirt and you come across pornography that comes from cultures where they don't have it. Like, I think it was... Um, I just came across, it was an Indian couple that had recorded themselves. And they were riding each other. They'd never seen what doggy style looks like. So it looked like um, a very sweaty wrestle. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But it was amazing to see it, how we're conditioned sexually because of what we're actually looking at. Again, the spectacle of sex as it's presented to us. I see. We've become hypnotised by pornography. It's set a template for us. And even in the most intimate aspects of our lives, we're incapable now of being innovative and original. Life becomes imitative. We become hypnotised by the spectacle, incapable of being spontaneous, incapable of being free. I like the idea that in Joycean pornography, he'd perhaps leave a little bit of spunk in the Liffey, and a little bit later, that same spunk would float by. And another Gets England pregnant. Off into the Atlantic. <laughs> so it'll be sort of transatlantic sperms. Yeah. So listen, I feel like we've gone down a bit of a, a, a peculiar avenue. <laughs> ah, fuck it, it's grand. It's all right, isn't it? This is life. You're off porn, aren't you? Did I hear that before? You're a pornography abstainer. <clears throat> yeah. I Are try... you a masturbation abstainer? I've not, like, well, thanks for taking it there. Um, <laughs> like, what, what it is, Blind Boy, is I try... Not in my culture in England, the chief cause of blindness is pornography. <laughs> as a matter of fact, so like I, the reason I don't look at pornography or currently masturbate is because why is it? Because ah, I sometimes think that word holy might refer to a kind of oneness, a kind of unity, and because of sort of a big part of my life now is looking after like my sort of beautiful little innocent daughters for all their savagery and brutality. I don't like having this sort of ancillary, annexed part of myself. Ah, oh, my children, my daughters. And then I sort of scurry off <laughs> to some little <laughs> sort of cul-de-sac of wank. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I like the idea that there is a certain essential purity. Now, not to judge anyone, because also as a father of two children, obviously... Cul-de-sac of wank. <laughs> by James Joyce. <laughs> I particularly like those long, rumbling fellows. He'd be Irish, obviously. Can't see, he can't have been English, can he? So, um, yeah, so like the part of the... Re and also, mate, because my rubric for understanding reality is uh, a 12-step abstinence model. Yeah. Like, that's how I receive reality. I think it's an incredibly flexible technique and not just for people with severe addiction issues, as a matter of fact. I think it's a template for understanding our attachment to external phenomena and a way into spiritual life that isn't uh, bearing the baggage of conventional faith, which I think is going to be an extremely powerful tool as we go forward and try to sort of shirk off uh, monotheism and many of the failed ideas of the last century. There is that sort of aphorism, isn't there? We can't solve 21st century problems with 20th century ideas. And I feel that new ideologies need to emerge to cope with the technological advances we've experienced and, and the resultant sociological impact of those advances. That in one sense, we do have a truly global culture of total intercommunication and total influence uh, uh, and sort of, a, sort of a, what do I want to say, saturation. But also we have a need, I think, now more than ever for sort of localised power. So, and, and I think no, no significant change will happen unless human beings are able to 
alter the mechanics of their own, if not neurology, at least their behavior. So when, like, you know, because the model of 12-step recovery works so well with the heroin and crack, I've used it in most areas of my life. Like, you know, like, you know, I don't think any of us, whether you're an addict or not, after finishing a, a wank, sort of goes... There, I'm a good guy. <laughs> this is who I am. Take a photograph of that. You know, that's one for the ages. You know, you sort of feel, generally speaking, I don't know how restricted this is to my personal experience because I was saying before you came out as part of your rather uh, protracted intro, uh, like, uh, you know, I assume that everyone understands at essence what I understand, that everyone understands oneness, that everyone understands kindness, that all of us are trying to strip away the carapace of regional identity while acknowledging there is so much beauty in those forms. Like coming to Ireland, a culture that is so sort of strong and vivid and amazing, whether it's the language or the familiarity or the more sort of obvious cultural uh, ephemera, you know, I'm aware of the beauty. It's not like I want to turn the world into some grey, banal landscape where no one has nuance. But I feel that we need to underwrite it with something that's universal about what it is to be human. And I think the 12-step model can do that. And that's why I don't wank anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Except verbally, as you just heard. Um, what's interesting about that, you were talking about, you know, attachment there and detachment. I think um, a lot of the, we say, the bullshit that's happening in the world today, it's because so much discourse is happening online, it's so easily polarised and angry because... It's like, you know, if, if you look at any comment section and you see a raging argument going on, furious people, do you think those two people would be that furious with each other if they're physically present in a room and have to be accountable? Do you know what I mean? I, I just don't think it would work that way. Yeah, if you had actual eye contact. This, this heartens me, actually. Like, that if you feel like sometimes there'll be an altercation in traffic where, like, in that moment when your blood's up, you think, oh, I'll kill that person. But I, I feel like with any person in the world, there's something they could tell you about themselves that would sort of break your heart. Like, that would make you think, all right, I'll look after you. And that's sort of a base level, I think. You know, even in moments of dispute with people, isn't it nice to remember that there perhaps is an ulterior and ultimate reality where if you were going, listen, you fucking cunt, that was my parking space, I'll kill you. If they went... When I was seven, my dad died. And in that moment, I, I, did, I couldn't find any men to look up to. And I thought, like, oh, fuck, yeah, the parking space isn't important. <laughs> like, you know? yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. our reality. We're all going to fucking die. We're all on the journey to that. Yeah. So isn't it a way that like all this hippie shit, people sort of say it's like, you know, love, kindness, like it's all sort of bullshit. But no, it's about hard truth, the hard truth of life and the hard truth of death, that we've got to learn to deal with each other more realistically, accepting our limitations, accepting our differences. Now, you're very interested in mental health. Why is that, mate? Are you mad? I say this looking across <laughs> at you, and you've got a fucking bag on your head. Um, I, I, I wouldn't have called myself... I used to have severe anxiety and depression about 10 years ago, and I'm now anxiety and depression free for 10 years well because I've, I've got a rigid mental health system. I've got a self-care system, mainly... I was lucky, like, I'd, I'd never suffered from mental illness. My issue was mental health, which to me means my view of myself, my view of other people, and my view of the world was excessively negative and fearful. Oh, that's a good definition. So I just basically tested it. I, I, I reappraised re how I felt about myself, how I felt about other people, and I do that on, on a daily basis. And mental health regime, really, to be honest, it's, it's no different to exercise. 
Could you, first of all, before we hear that, and I'm sure I'd like to hear what you do for your sort of your uh, regimen for mental health, could you describe the depression and anxiety as you experienced it 10 years ago? What was it like? What did it feel like? And how did it impact your life? Um, would have been about 18 or 19. The, the thing is, my main thing would have been anxiety. And the thing is, with anxiety, anxiety can result in quite a lot of shame because my anxiety kept me from leaving the house. So I would... I'd get anxiety attacks in a certain place, like in the pub or in a supermarket. So the natural thing for me to do then, the logical thing was, oh, supermarkets give me anxiety attacks. I can't go there anymore. But before I knew it, I was kind of stuck in my room all the time, afraid to leave the house in case I get an anxiety attack. That then brings a ferocious amount of shame with it because then I start judging myself going, all my friends are capable of going to the shop. What's wrong with me? That then resulted in depression. So it's this really shitty cycle. And I think the root of my... Like, I was just afraid of being an adult. I was terrified of being autonomous, you know? Did, would, you, would you... So you were talking about the cause, and that was going to be my next question. I don't know why I want you to know that that was going to be my next question. Like, as if, I'm psychic. But, like, <laughs> was there some sort of trauma, would you say? Or, like, what do you think precipitated it? I mean, I understand this, like, that cyclical idea of feeling ashamed and not feeling like you can deal with other people. I can still get a little bit like that now, as a matter of fact. But, like, how does... Like, do you, but I would now relate that to, oh, this is because when you were a kid, this happened and that yeah. happened. Do, do you have that kind of awareness? Or? Yeah, when I, like, my parents were quite old, and when I, I, I was born with fairly bad asthma, oh. but my... Fucking, and now for a job, you put a bag on your fucking head. <laughs> I know, yeah. It's the one thing it says on a plastic bag. Do not put this on your head. They might add, if they were going to put something else, especially not if you've got asthma. <laughs> Amazing. But, Heroic. Uh, In a very mythic sense. My, uh, my Am I the first person to point that out? Because I want some credit. No, no, no one has pointed that particular one out. Yes. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Still demanding a round of applause when someone's opening up about their psychological history. That's the level of narcissism we're dealing with. So, like, you had, your, your parents were older and yeah. you, had, you had asthma as a boy. I had so this... very bad asthma and my, my dad would have been quite anxious. He and he, I can actually trace my father's anxiety back to the famine. He, I can, he learned how to be anxious off his ma, and uh, his ma learned how to be anxious off her ma, who was actually starving. So it, 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 patterns of, of anxious behavior and depressive personality types will pass through. Yeah. And it's sort of amazing, but it makes sense. It's true. It? Like you, that you would, there would be generational trauma is an idea. You know quite a lot about psychoanalysis. Don't you have a degree in it or something? I, I studied, I did like three or four years training to be a psychotherapist, and then I stopped so I could wear a bag in my head. Brilliant. Good decision. Good decision. Uh, the psychotherapy's loss is plastic bags gain. Um, yeah. like, so, w mate, like, so would you... So well, that idea of generational trauma, does that... Like, you've just been quite frivolous, but that's well, sort of true, isn't it? Well, there's two ways. Like, there, there, there's a, there is actual research now being done into trauma being, being passed on genetically. They're looking specifically at people in the Holocaust and how genetically trauma is passed on. Now, that's a very new field, which is quite hard to get your head around, but the simple one is behaviours get passed on. If, if you're a young child and you're around, if, if your parent is excessively angry or if your parent naturally looks at things in a negative fashion, the child knows nothing other than to look at the parent as the authority of truth. Fuck. So we learn these things. But the beauty of being, becoming an adult and, and psychotherapy and self-help is 
that narrative you learn as a child, once you become a fucking adult, you can go, holy shit, that's not the way it is. I can rewrite my script. So, yeah, for me, my, my dad used to, he found out that I had asthma. He, the doctor would have said, well, there's a slight chance of death, but, you know, and then my dad would have ran out of the hospital going, oh, he's going to die. So when I was about three or four, if I was, like, to want to play soccer with my friends, he would just start going, no, you'll die. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And that was off-putting. Yeah, it was. And and like he, he man on, man on, mark him. You're gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> so me being being four or five, it's like oh, the adult is telling me I'm gonna die if I do normal things that my normal friends are doing too. And it was to protect me. But then when I got older, a normal thing meant wow. you know going to fucking school, going out, uh, things that were adult. Deep in my unconscious, it manifested itself as a severe fear of uh, death. That's good analysis, good self-analysis, holds up, doesn't it? Good narrativization. Yeah, we... And on this show, we applaud self-awareness. This <laughs> 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 is kind of new age. Um, but, like, yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. That definition of adulthood, isn't, do you not think that could be, in a sense, the uh, a central definition of adulthood, an ability to control the own, your own narrative, to say, I am no longer my trauma, I am no longer my past... I can recreate myself. Absolutely. That is the, 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 the key to being a, an adult, I think, is... Like, it, it's... First off, it's understanding the intrinsic value. Um, I am no better than anybody else. Nobody else is better than me because yeah. I've got an intrinsic value that can't be taken away. The other thing is to understand that no aspect of your behaviour can define your value as a person. So, for me, we'll say, like, my... My creativity, like my mental health is very much attached to my creativity. If, if I'm creating, then chances are I'm in a good mental place, you know? If I'm procrastinating, that's when I end up down the anxiety land. Do you know mm. what I'm saying? But for me, the crucial thing is to not... Be a horrible theme park. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anxiety land. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I just, I make sure that my creativity... Like, if, if I release a fucking short story or a podcast or whatever and it doesn't do very well, I have to be very cautious around how much I beat myself up over that. I can't allow my, an aspect of my, my behaviour, such as creativity, to define my value as a person. That's important. That's very interesting. It's huge. Because I, you know, as a person that's sort of toyed with celebrity, like, I find it extremely difficult. And that model that I just described of attachment, e.g. with pornography or, you know, substance misuse, if I start becoming overly attached, yeah, even to, oh, this podcast has done well, this hasn't yeah. done well, then suddenly, yeah, then... Or Googling your name. You mustn't Google your name. Do not Google yourself right up the name hole. No good ever comes <laughs> from it. No, like, you know, sort of, in a way... Oh, this is an important idea, I think, mate. This is an important idea. Also, I think it's important that psychotherapeutic language enters the social discourse in a way that is benevolent and encouraging. I mean, the same. And not through Jordan Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> like, not solely, at least, because in a way, that kind of language can be used to, what do I want to say, augment individualism, to sort of say, no, we are individuals and hierarchies are necessary and, and yeah. ought and be challenged. But it seems that, how are you going to use your awareness of uh, psychoanalysis to create alternative stories that are perhaps underwrite compassion and community? How And can you do that? I, I try and do it a bit through my podcast. I mean, with my podcast, every week I speak about my own... Like, I'm cautious about... 
it being a self-help podcast because it's not like what I do is why because it, it's I, I'm not qualified do you know what I mean what, so what, what neither am I and it's never stopped me <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what I always find is that like, I'm a good authority on myself. Yeah. So what I do is when I speak about mental health, I try and keep it as person-centered around me as possible. I speak about my experiences. I speak about what's worked for me. And then I allow people to go, well, if listening to me talk about that about myself was of help, fair play to you. But it's just the one thing you have to... Like the one therapy that worked 100% for me is cognitive behavioral therapy. I use that on a daily basis. Talk us through that and also that regime for mental health that you mentioned earlier then I sort of forgot about because I went back to thinking about Joyce and that spunk in the Liffey and all that stuff. <laughs> and those long fellows came back to me as well. <laughs> Talk about CBT and your personal mental health regimen. See, we can't call it CBT because there's cock and ball torture as well. Um, <clears throat> internet has ruined that. But uh, <laughs> cognitive behaviour therapy is basically, it's, it's about assessing... Uh, like I said, thoughts about yourself, thoughts about other people, and thoughts about the world. It's like how we think, um, how we think influences how we feel, which in turn influences how we behave. So my expression of anxiety, my, me not wanting to go to the supermarket because I'm scared of a panic attack, that's my behavior. But the uh, emotion of anxiety was caused by initially anxious thoughts, and those initially anxious thoughts were... If I, go to the, if I go to the supermarket, I'm going to have a panic attack. Everyone's going to stare at me. What if I get sick on the ground and I become an object of disgust? Oh, you wow. know, these type of things. That, that was the specific fear. That was the actual, you know, wh why are you afraid to go outside? It's like, in case I suffer some massive public humiliation, such as getting sick or going mad and everyone having to stare at me. How does that align with your original inadvertent indoctrination of fear of death as passed on by your father, do you think? You know, how does fear of death become fear of humiliation? Um, I don't know how that works, but w when you're in the throes of a panic attack, when, you're, when, you're, like, when, when you're, your anxiety is up at about nine, you literally think you're dying. Right. You know, it, it, it is, I, I am dying right now and there's nothing I can do to stop it. That's the worst panic attack, you know, and that's what I used to get. So what I did is I used... CBT, it's, it's not positive thinking. What it is is that it's rational thinking. So you treat your thoughts as if you're a scientist. <laughs> and you start off doing this by writing your thoughts down. So if my thoughts were, um, if I go to the supermarket, I'm going to puke and it'll be humiliating and everyone will stare at me, I'd write it down. And because it's there in front of me on the page, I can detach from it and I can go, where is the evidence that this is going to happen? And the fact is, there's no fucking evidence. It's my anxiety telling me it's the truth. And I would do that over and over again. And then I would say, okay, let's just say I did fucking puke my ring up in the supermarket. What would actually happen? What would actually happen is that, okay, one or two people might look at me in disgust, but someone else might come over and help. Someone else might go and say, oh, that happened to me last week. And I could laugh about it afterwards. Do you know what I mean? It might be nice. It could be nice. It could be, to be honest, it... it I'd imagine puking your ring up in a supermarket. Now looking at it, I'd go, yeah, that's an experience. Yeah. Do you know? I, that, that was just my specific, that, that would have been one of my specific fears, but I changed my thoughts from uh, rigid to flexible and rational. Also within that, I think, which uh, for me, I find personally helpful, the idea that your thoughts 
are something that you can be objective about and that you can alter. That it's not like, well, this is just who I am. I'm just a guy who feels like afraid of puking up in a supermarket and that can't be changed. And that can be applied perhaps to all, all of the thought systems we have. One of the sort of spiritual ideas I'm attracted to is that, is that uh, the th- your thoughts are the first layer of the material world, the first veil of Maya. You are not your thoughts. I am the witness, the observer of my thoughts. Now that, well, you you know, being of a secular mindset, described it as a scientist observing your thoughts and yeah. rationally, in inverted commas, analysing those thoughts. Whereas yeah. I, because uh, I have a spiritual perspective, would say, oh no, the consciousness that is experiencing my thoughts is my true self. And if I can align myself with that consciousness, I can be free of those thoughts. How regularly do you have to deploy these techniques, mate? Is it something you have habitualized, as it were? I, I, yeah, I, what kind of happens is... It's, it's, I, t- I think the term used is neuroplasticity. It, it's, it's, if you imagine, um, okay, you, you go to the shop every day from your house, we'll say, right? And there's a field in the way between you and, your, and, and, and the, the shop. You tend to go down a little furrow in the grass yes. that's naturally put there by human beings, okay? And one day you decide, now that furrow, that's the negative thoughts. So my natural propensity towards anxiety, that would have been my path in the grass to the shop. So one day you decide, fuck that, I don't like that path. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a new one. So the next path you, you decide to make, you're, you're carving it out in the grass yourself. And the grass is really fucking long. It's unpleasant. There might be a few nettles. And the first few days of it are really, really difficult. But after about three weeks, the old path has grown over. And now you've got this new path that's a lot easier and shorter that you've made yourself. I think we enjoyed that analogy. <clears throat> So that's my, my default. Like, thinking rationally is now my default. Are you aware that your entire image system is built around trips to Aldi and things... <laughs> 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 and things that might go wrong when you get there? <laughs> right, I've got to walk through these fucking nettles, but then I'll puke up when I fucking get there. How yeah. am I going to get me fucking toilet roll? Everyone will be looking. Sorry for the Irish accent. I accept that's racist. It's true. <laughs> It's true. All I do is hang around my house and go to the shop. Like you're wanking and going to Aldi. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to present you as one of the great minds in Ireland. <laughs> All you've done is wanked, put a bag on your head, and puked up in a supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> what about, though, returning to uh, like, uh, some, uh, one of the creative aspects of, of your work, that fucking short story thing, mate, that's messed my head up. Who here has read that, the um, blind boy's short stories? Well, you fucking should. It's mental. Now, talk me through, in particular... The one about Michael Collins. <laughs> and tell the audience here what it's like, because I'd like to see how you pick um, your way through it. I wrote a story, basically, in, in, in my book. It's, it presents the theory that Eamon de Valera is given uh, Holy Mary's womb in his, in his bowels. A popular so, idea. Yeah. <laughs> so Eamon de Valera, basically, is, is the holy heart or immaculate, whatever the fuck she calls herself, comes down and gives him a... The type of womb that she would have had when she gave birth to Jesus, but it's in his bowels. So Michael Collins has to get him pregnant. So the whole story basically is about the two very heterosexual men needing to have gay sex with each other for Ireland so that (laughs) Eamon de Valera can birth out of his arse uh, Michael Collins' children, which are are these two-foot, 
like little basketball things called Arse Children. <laughs> and there's about 12 of them. Eamon de Valera ends up like exploding into this big pupae and births these little Arse shit children and they end up executing. Actually, this is, I think this is the anniversary of it. Happy anniversary. Actually, no, the, um, do you remember in... To the Republic and to your book. <laughs> <laughs> when the fucking, when the Brits went into Croke Park on the All-Ireland Final and, and, and shot, all the, uh, shot all the people in the crowd. That's tomorrow. That's tomorrow. That was Bloody Sunday, the first Bloody Sunday. So the How book... auspicious. I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> the story takes place on that. Uh, the, 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 I think it was tomorrow morning uh, in 1922... Michael Collins sent a special squad to all the streets in London or streets in Dublin to use the All Ireland final as subterfuge, and they executed like sixteen of the most elite British spies in one morning. But in my book, it's not the IRA that do it; it's these special children that were born out of uh, De Valera's arse. And isn't it like that? He can only <laughs> copulate with Michael Collins. If he's drunk like pina coladas and holiday yeah, drinks a, and that, there's a there's a lot of cocktails in there. That's mainly because uh, where the the building that it takes place, the mansion house, across the way from that is a, a cocktail bar that I frequent. So I just couldn't stop getting lovely cocktails out of my head. So I had to write it into the story when I was visualising myself there. But my uncles, like my ma was telling me, like my granddad used to be like he was in the IRA down in West Cork in the 1920s. Oh yeah, and my poor my my uncles. My uncles were reading the fucking story and they're owl lads and they started panicking going, what the fuck is our nephew writing about? What is this? Like my granddad would have known Michael Collins like. Oh, wow. So, so this story, like, this is what I think is interesting about it. You should read it if you've not read it because I know sort of possibly when it's described in those terms, it's obviously deliberately iconoclastic. Yeah. Both from the, the modern Republican myth of you know, great heroes of that movement, but also iconoclastic towards the Catholic faith. Yeah. Why, do, why did you write that? What, are you, what the fucking hell are you doing? <laughs> what, no, what, what, was your, what was your point? What's to be your, honest, what's your uh, so the story has two parts. After I go through all the Michael Collins stuff, you find out that this story was actually something that was posted on the internet. And the second half of the story takes place now. And it's about modern Ireland trying to find the person who wrote this horrible story and put it online. And it becomes a critique of online rage, basically. And eventually it ends with uh, three people just eating the author. They're, they're so enamoured with the passion of anger that they have no choice other than to consume the author to eat him alive. Um, but what I wanted to do was to take these things, these, these we'll say the, the Irish, Irish white heterosexual uh, totems such as Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera who are straight Irish white men. Uh, that they, they, everything Irishness is them. And I, I just wanted to, to fuck with it by presenting a different narrative. And to, to ask people as well, what is so offensive about the two lads having sex? Yeah, well, it, precisely, because it, it presents some interesting questions about sacrilege. That yeah. If it feels sacrilegious to imagine that, like a challenge to the heroism of those men, then what it reveals is that we are unconsciously carrying prejudice about certain types of sexuality. So that raises an important question. But obviously also you're, uh, I'm going to use the word meddling, meddling with sort of some Christian yeah. mythos also. What is it you're trying to do? What are you trying to reveal? Um, 
I, I, ha I often have a problem with, like, I, I, I have an anger towards Catholicism because I was, I was raised with it, you know, I was raised with it in, in school. Like, I remember being six years of age and, I don't know, we were acting bold or whatever in class and one, actually, no, one of the lads in class put his willy into a girl's ear. <laughs> and that's what happens if you don't give people proper sex education. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we were like six or seven, you know, and it was a free class. And basically everyone... Ev Everyone who was present, everyone who was present, um, we were just kids, like everyone who was present and saw it happening, the nuns who were teaching us took us all aside. And instead of like properly, this is what, here's the one thing that bothered me, right? First of all, the, the lad who actually did it, the, the lad who was seven years of age and took it upon himself to do something with his penis, right? I know from psychology now that that's a red flag. A six-year-old child should not know anything about penises and where uh, to assert them. The, likely he's an abuse victim. There you saying. go. So the nuns missed that. They immediately <laughs> went straight to judgment. It's like, ah. why is this fucking seven-year-old doing something with his dick? When you're seven, your dicks are for peeing, not for inserting. In, in or possibly drawing a face on. Yeah, or for drawing a face That's on. That's not a personal example. So It is, and I was 11. What, <laughs> what the nuns did to us as punishment is they got a bunch of jam jars, right? and filled them up like this. They got the jam jars and filled them up with clean we, water. We, we provided these yeah. to uh, evoke that memory. And they put the jam jars in front of all of us, seven-year-old kids, and then they went to a flower pot and got a bunch of dirt, and they said, you see this jam jar, and you see the water, that's your soul. Dirt, that's your soul now, it's black. <laughs> that's a bit heavy, because yes. you're seven. The thing was is that we weren't allowed to make our a first confession, that's the thing you do before you get your communion in Irish school. So when you get your first confession, your soul is cleansed. We weren't allowed to make it for a year later. So we had the... To live with the dirty soul. The horrible pressure of like going, I've got a filthy, horrible, dirty soul and there's nothing I can do about it. I need a priest to absolve it. And, and it's like, how do I absolve it again? Oh yeah, just go, go in there to that uh, coffin that's standing up. Stand inside there and tell your secrets to a stranger and then your jam jar soul will be clean. So the absurdity of that, like, I, I, I'm angry that I was taught that level of rationality alongside mm. subjects like history and Excellent. science. So that's why Excellent. I gave De Valera the immaculate womb. It's like, all right, it's fucking ridiculous. Let's put it here now. Let's see, why is this ridiculous and that's not? Holy Mary flew into the clouds, like. Yeah, I see. Because in a way, like the way that image systems and symbols are presented and which ones are given validity is how power operates. This system of absurd ideas is valid. This yeah. system of absurd ideas is invalid. And if you look at it, Russell, right, the most absurd systems are, the, are, are always um, bolstered by the most amount of solemnity, right? Ooh, the two that's, mo nice. the that's a nice sentence. The two most I'm absurd things. Again, the most absurd systems are bolstered by their what? By the by, um, the most absurd amount of no, by by the strongest amount of solemnity. Strongest amount of solemnity. Well, I liked that. But it's true. The two very very absurd things are religion and war, right? Uh, religion is is. I know you're a religious man, but telling a seven year old. I prefer the term religious nut. <laughs> Would you respect that? Telling a fucking seven year old child that your soul is a jam jar, and you have to drink the blood of a two thousand year old carpenter, and you have to eat his arm. Like, we were all taught that, you know? It's like, no, you're, this piece of bread here, it's not bread, it's, it's his fucking arm and you have to eat it, you cunt. And he's 2,000 years old and he's a carpenter. You're presented with this 
it's the only way you can get someone to believe something that absurd is to be very solemn and serious around it. No room for humor, no room for critique. The yeah. other thing is we've got a lot of oil out in the desert and we need you to sign up and give your life and be murdered and murder people for it. How do you do that? It's solemnity, rules, uh, hierarchies, mm. completely solemn. Point. I love this point because in a sense, have you not noticed even in, a, in, in perhaps in particular in childhood, the special... Uh, what do I want to say, rigidity that is applied when people are naughty and mischievous, yeah. the spirit of mischief, because it is recognised that the spirit of mischief eventually will go, I'm not fucking doing that. It yeah. reckon, like, I consider comedy to be the continual revelation of a d deeper truth, that there is an absurdity in the, all of our beliefs and nothing should be exempted from that kind of... Uh, from from that kind of targeting. I also, on a slightly more mundane note, like the idea of imagining them nuns having that meeting to decide, right, one of the lads has stuck his dick in a girl's ear. There's only one thing for it. Yeah. <laughs> Get some jam gels. Yeah. <laughs> and some soil. Like, you know, like There's no way they thought of it on the spot. Like, this is, this is, someone had taught this to them. Yeah, you couldn't spontaneously come up with that. That's a, like, so I, I do, now listen, now we're in, but we're in interesting territory here because as you have said, that I, I am a, a religious person, but I, I suppose... Hmm. Would you, are you someone who'd say, I'm spiritual but not religious? Well, I'd be careful of that because even that's now becoming slightly tainted with a kind of ickiness. Of, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, like, so, but, but what like I can't call myself an atheist because there's so many atheists that are pricks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> I feel like, don't you think increasingly that what we're like, you know, I can sort of, I talk to people that are from across the ideological spectrum and I find like a fellowship and allegiance with people that are willing to prioritise truth and are aware enough that truth itself is something that can be regarded from many different perspectives. And, and for me, when you point out the, uh, the absurdity of religion, it's usually as a result of people fetishizing, and I mean yeah. that sort of literally, the symbols themselves instead of the truths that they're supposed to evoke when talking of... And that fetishizing becomes commoditized for power. Like, that's what the Catholic Church is. It's generational power and wealth and property over many, many years, you know? Yes, and that is a template that's applicable both in the, in the economic world, the political world, and the religious world. So I don't think, even though you know, I'm saying this as a sort of a secular Englishman, I don't think that that power is exclusive to religion and that that problem is not exclusive to religion. Now, I know that you know, this is a different country for m many reasons and in many ways, but my, the reason that I am sympathetic towards religion is I don't think that rationalism material. I think that rationalism and materialism lead to commercialism and consumerism. I yeah. feel it. I feel that when you say to people, you're just a person, you're in infinite space, you're going to fucking die. Like that, in a sense, that, that for me, empirically and demonstrably, we've been living in it, leads to the only thing that matters is what I can get, what I've got. It's hard for people to have a metaphysical perspective. It's hard for people to say, no, we're all one. Let's love one another. Those ideas are thrown out with the, you know, with the, 
the baby of, of uh, you know, union and oneness yeah. is thrown out with the bathwater of all the paraphernalia that you rightly ridicule, although I would respect anybody that's into that shit if they, you know, are doing yeah, my it to thing, like, I don't give a fuck if, if someone is, is Catholic and that works for them and that's part of their... Because essentially religion is... It's, it's, it's someone's mental health regime. That's what it is. Ultimately, that's yes. what religion does. It's your mental health regime. So if someone is practicing Catholicism... And that's their business, and it keeps them happy. Like, I've no problem with that whatsoever. Yeah, because if we're talking about, like, St. Francis or St. Augustine or Thomas yeah. Aquinas, these are fucking geniuses. Like, you know, these aren't like, these aren't like, ooh, whoopee, there's a yeah. sky woman and a carpenter and all that. They're living on the level of the ulterior, of the mystical. And of, I know that you know that, you know, of course, because I've read your stuff and listened to your stuff, that language, it, it, the metaphor begins as soon as we open our mouths and talk yeah. to one another. And once we start deploying image systems, Systems, then we're deeper into the potentially ridiculous. Yeah. But like, how are we ever going to challenge power structures? Because one of the things you wanted to talk about, and I'm keen to talk about it as well, is uh, direct provision, a yeah. particular type of asylum that's unique to, us, or, uh, unique to this country as far as I know. Um, now, how do we alter social justice issues solely through rational means? Because through rational and material means... I feel that it becomes acceptable to yeah. um, uh, have pejorative policies towards migrants or to have, you know, an ethnic underclass or a white underclass or whatever, you know. My, my thing with uh, direct provision is... You, you all know what direct provision is, yeah? Will you unpack it for the listeners? I will, for the listeners. Um, it's basically a, a system... It's a system in Ireland whereby asylum seekers are housed in such a way whereby Ireland can tick the boxes of international law, but at the same time operate a system which is quite inhumane. And I think what they're trying to do is to make life for asylum seekers so bad that they actually leave or that other people... Like anyone I've spoken to who has contact with direct provision, they say what they're trying to do is they're aware that people in direct provision are emailing back home to the, the countries they came from, and they're saying, don't come here, I've been here for nine years in a box, do not come to Ireland. That's what people say it's about, but we're, we're treating asylum seekers incredibly inhumane fashion. They're on about 10 quid a week, they can't work, uh, they're living five, six years in horrible conditions. Their children, if the, if the children born in direct division want to go to college, they have to pay full fees, which is like 60 grand. It's it's absolutely ridiculous, and it's it's sanitised from us in the media. It's not really spoken about. The reason I wanted to speak about it tonight is just because there's a massive platform here. So I just want to be able to go. Here's this thing. Read up about it. How can we change it? Um, si simple, like this isn't an answer, but like I mean, quite simply, I mean, read up about direct provision, learn about it, take an interest in it if it's happening in your area, which it probably is. And ask your fucking TDs. Tell them, I care about direct provision. Do you care about it, you know? The sense I get, like, and this is not a particular to Ireland because I spend most of my time in England, that we're at a point where people feel so personally bewildered and punished that it's that compassion and social justice issues and interest in them is being seriously eroded, mate. Like, that's why, yeah. like, you know, that's how, like, I can almost feel the weight of, oh, fucking hell, I've got to care about this now. You know what I mean? I can also almost feel it. What do, you, what do we do about that? Well, Brexit and Trump don't help in that situation because it's like having, trying to have a serious discussion and just 
a sheet covered in glitter walks into the room. Do you know what I mean? It is like that. It's like you're trying to discuss this issue, but there's something really loud and crazy happening in the middle of the room, and we, can, we now have to talk about the glittery sheep, this meaningless glittery sheep. How did it get in here? Who put the glitter on it? And if it shits on the ground, what does it look like, and how do we clean it up? But, like, that's kind of what's happening. It's, it's even the shit that Trump is causing, so much of it is about him. Do you know, with Brexit, like, the Brexit discourse at the moment is utterly absurd. It's... Will there be no Brexit? What's it like if there's no Brexit? Oh, it's post-apocalyptic. There's no solutions on the table. It's becoming about personalities. So we're all arguing about these... We're arguing about someone's hat, do you know, but not the actual issues that are happening because it's just... We've never seen this before. We've never seen Trump before. We've never seen someone... He's Like, Trump is like... Do you remember, like, 10 years ago, you'd read, read about crazy dictators in Turkmenistan... Mm. And you go, oh, how eccentric. Imagine living in that country. And now the person who's supposed to be the leader of the free world is that crazy dictator. Um, so we don't know what to do. We don't know what the rules are around that. My feeling is that, the, that what preceded Brexit and Trump are more important than Brexit and Trump because those were the conditions that led to this phenomena. And I, my concern is, by focusing on the glittery sheep, to mm-hmm. use your rather wonderful metaphor, we will not address what led to, those, to, to both of those crises. Because, like, you know, when I, on, on this podcast, I spoke to this geezer, Kahindi Andrews, who's a, yeah. an, a, a professor of black studies, right? And he said the, the incredibly provocative and interesting statement that uh, Donald Trump is a better president for African-Americans than Barack Obama simply because it is now it is revealed. Yeah. The grotesque, like, and, and I can't help but think that he is, and I don't know this, and I could, um, there's, I'm sure there's loads of people that could school me, he is merely a grotesque amplification of what already existed. If you have a culture that vilifies uh, immigrants, a culture that's built on conflict, built on, you know, like it's still, we're still existing within those poles. No one's like, if you're going, we've just got to get rid of Trump, we've just got to sort out this Brexit thing, then you're not saying, well, what are we going to do about the entire belief system that underscores it. And I feel almost, blind boy, that we need a kind of international CBT where we reprogram the consciousness of nations, where we start to ask quite fundamental questions about how we establish systems, what, what our values are, what yeah. it's built upon. And we won't do that, you know, with the glittery sheep. We won't. I mean, my hope is that it, it's... It's, it's almost as if the world is after getting a slap of a hammer into the head and we're trying to figure out how to recompose ourselves, uh, do you know? I don't know what's going to happen after Trump. The, he's broken so many rules of what being presidential is. Yeah. It's like, what, what do we expect from somebody now, you know? It's, uh, it's amazing that someone can front that out because, like, yeah, a little while ago, the sexism, the yeah. misogyny, the racism, you'd think any single one of those things. Like, now Bill Clinton's blowjob in the White House, you wouldn't even bother to think no, about it, would you? Trump, Trump on a daily basis will tweet something that would end the career of a president before. I met him, you know. Like, Did I you? met him, yeah, ages ago. I, met, I was into that band before you lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I met him, I went to that Trump Tower... 
and I interviewed him, and I remember thinking, how has this person, this is all I thought, is he had a, an incredible lack of intellectual or philosophical or spiritual curiosity. That's what I thought. I just thought, you're not curious about stuff. He was sort of not unlikable, actually. He was sort of like some sort of um, a beaming idiot cheese that, were, you know, that was, in a sense... You know, oh, I don't mind a bit of cheese. That's enough yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm getting headache, <laughs> like, like you would with real cheese. But like, uh, but it was more like I was asking him. Like, I remember thinking, right, I'm doing this interview. Like, so you know, like when you're talking to someone, don't you think, well, let's try and see what their essential self is, so that we can commune in some way and have some experience of value. Otherwise, we're just fucking here decaying. So I goes, um, yeah, but aren't you like? And he, and he kept, all he could talk about is, no, no, we do charity work. We do the, you know, like he couldn't, like he had no curiosity beyond the most superficial understanding of power. Not even like what power might mean, what power might refer to. Just power in terms of its symbols, its totems. You know, like oh, I've got these towers, I've got this power. Nothing beyond that. Like, you know, if you think of the image of a big tower with the word Trump written on it in gold, that's about all and you need to know. Like, do you think, like he was in an interview setting, do you think when, the, when, when you left the room that he, that's actually what he's like? Well, this happened. He goes to me, come my office afterwards. It was a weird day. I was interviewing him in that Trump Tower and the person that was doing the sound like suddenly got a phone call that their fucking kid had died. Oh, right? Christ. Right, so this mad, heavy oh thing God. happened where they just went... Like, was we he just, present for that? We're waiting. Trump's not here yet. We're waiting for him because, remember, he's got to get his hair done. That takes fucking ages. Someone's got to spray that shit up. Right, so like... <clears throat> Like, this guy just takes a phone call and goes, my kid's just died. And he sort of puts down his boom, like, you know, one of them mics on a pole. And he's like, and we're like, fucking hell, Jesus. And like, sort of, you know, like, you know, like I was saying before, actually, that our, we are disrupted by pure truth. Like, when something real happens, you're yeah. like, oh, well, what does any of this shit matter? You yeah. Know? So that guy sort of, you know, has had that happen. And it's real sort of grounding and mm -hmm. weird and unusual because we're in Trump Tower waiting for Donald Trump overlooking Central Park and something very awful and tragic I suppose has happened so that guy leaves and then he comes and we do the interview and I'm just I'm sort of I'm thinking I'm like looking at him while he's talking and I'm just thinking how did he get that money if he's that stupid mm -hmm. that's what I was thinking then I found out someone give it him that's how <laughs> he's that right but then I thought no it's like imagine and this has made me think about capitalism that like it's like it's a game like you're saying like many of the uh, the way that we allocate heroism or the architecture of religion, many of these, uh, you can challenge the symbols and structures around them. Perhaps it's capitalism is a comparable thing. I sort of remember thinking maybe capitalism is just like that game Hungry Hippos where you have to get as many marbles as possible <laughs> and this is just a guy who's good at Hungry Hippos. So yeah. like, imagine if we built our culture around Hungry Hippos then like only people that were good at hungry hippos would have power. <laughs> yeah. We'd be fucked. So or except unless you're good at hungry hippos, in which case, well done. Like so like then but then afterwards he takes me to his office and he offered me any item that I wanted from his office, which was <laughs> like your six. Anything you choose, take it. So a fucking a, a door after a, a door off a dresser. <laughs> I'll have that. I'll have, yeah, unscrew it. Have you got a screwdriver? Take that. <laughs> Take a good, a good while. <laughs> what the fuck? I know. Was there anything there that worth taking? Well, yeah. He had Muhammad Ali's heavyweight championship belt on the fucking wall, which I've always wanted. 
But I didn't take anything because... Because it's, it's too weird a question. It's too weird. Like, your nan would never do it. Do you want these horse brasses or that carriage clock? It's like, oh, I don't know, like, when you're a fucking kid and you're, like, hanging out with one of the guys and he's got all the cool stuff and he doesn't have a lot of friends and he offers you one of his ties. Yeah. We all know that one, yeah? Yeah. Do you want this? Do you want one of my wrestlers? Yeah, I'll have that He-Man. Nice, I'll yeah. take him. Thank but, you. But you're, you are left I with... I was um, the kid. Take my He-Man! I remember that happened to me, actually. Yeah, I went over to a, a lad's house from school and he, he was fairly wealthy and he gave me, like, um, yeah, I think it was like a little wrestler and I took it and I remember the feeling of emptiness. And yeah. I, I'm, what that emptiness was, and I was very young, I think what it was is, like, that transaction was not a genuine friendship transaction. Yeah, Do you know? I, I just knew something was off. In the crucible of your belly. I once stole Bubba Fett <laughs> from a lad pool. You know Bubba Fett from Star Wars? Yeah. I really wanted Bubba Fett, so I stole him. And then I got, you know, the phone rang and it was his mum calling my mum to say, oh Christ. where's Bubba Fett? <laughs> and I knew to say I was go, minding him. Russell, where's Bubba Fett? And I go, well, firstly, I don't know what you mean by Bubba Fett. <laughs> what are these words, mother? So what so happened? I was much posher than my family. <laughs> what happened? I had to give Bubba Fett back, and it was humiliating, and I felt not emptiness, but the hollow pang of shame. Okay. All right. If wish we'd known each other, then you could have <laughs> given me that wrestler, and this the circle, the circle of life. <laughs> In a way, don't you think that we have occupied during this conversation an interesting sort of latitude, like of really weird, stupid stuff, and then quite profound, lovely stuff? Do you think so? Are you happy? So I think the most, some of the things that I'm going to take from it, Blind Boy, is that we should have a mental health regimen that we treat the same way as we would treat nutrition or whatever. In my language, that's I have a program. and Because like, I believe that either you have, you know, if you aren't working a program, you're being worked by a program. You already have the program. You have the program of your class, your culture, your school, your family. You've been programmed. Possibly you can debug yourself through some other program. In my case, 12 Steps. In yours case, CBT. And as we can see, this is two pictures of perfect mental health. <laughs> <laughs> Sit before you now. <laughs> um, we'll call that the end of the episode of Under the Skin. Thank you very much for joining me, Blind Boy. Do check out the podcast. What's your podcast called? The Blind Boy Podcast. Confusing, confusing name. <laughs> and do check out what's your book called? The Gospel According to Blind Boy. That's a fucking. Get into that shit. <laughs> yeah, check that out. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, Blind Boy. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. What an intelligent, insightful, brilliant man he is. Remember, uh, let me know what you thought by sharing it on your Instagram stories. Share it on there and tagging me at True Russell Brand or on Twitter with the hashtag under the skin. Our next guest, as I've mentioned, is Candice Owens. If you want to question me, it's uh, hello at russellbrand.com. Please subscribe and share it. And once more, check out the Netflix special, which is my stand-up show, Rebirth. I love you. You know that I love you, don't you? Have a lovely time.